Today we begin a new study, study in the book of Galatians. And as we begin, I would have you note or take notice of the first sentence of this letter. You know, the first sentence of a book can be very important. In many ways, it determines whether or not the reader continues. It should grab the attention of the reader. I've mentioned this before as we've begun studies of other books. Um, but listen to some of the opening sentences of some of the better known books. Call me Ishmael. That's from Moby Dick by Herman Melville. Or from Anna Karenina. Happy families are all alike. Unhappy family. Uh, every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. By Tolstoy. Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities, perhaps very well known. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. And then for Jane McCurley, who I know happens to like Jane Austen, from Pride and Prejudice, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. So we have this expectation that great literature will begin with really grabbing sentences. But some, for some reason, we don't have this expectation of scripture. It seems that we see particularly the epistles as formulaic, that they sort of be, all begin the same way. And they're just preliminary stuff. It's like, this is Paul, blah, blah, blah. And then we'll get to the good stuff later on in the letter. Now, while there was a pattern to the letters, these epistles, because they were written in the form of that time, we've seen this before. First of all, it's the person who's writing. Secondly, the person or persons being addressed. And then thirdly, a greeting of such or of some sort. And we see that here. But there is so much in this opening sentence, which takes up verses one through five here in Galatians one. Follow along, if you would, as I, as I read Paul, an apostle sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers with me to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This may not strike you as noteworthy. It may not grab you. But I would argue that in this opening sentence, Paul gives the reader, the readers, that is us, but the original readers, the Galatians, strong hints of what is to come. In this sentence, we have it all. The single plan of God and the rest of the letter will, in fact, be spent unpacking what he says in this opening sentence. First of all, we have what theologians call the eschatological framework. That is God's plan for the future, for the whole world and for his people. It is God's purpose that is driven through history. Paul believed that the single purposes of God were moving toward a definite goal. There was what is known as a telos. There was a goal in mind. 
It was the redemption of his people and the rescue of his creation. Now, where Paul differed from those he is opposing in this letter is that he believed that God's definite plan had already been launched in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see in this opening sentence that Jesus Christ has broken through into the present age, this age of sin and evil and death into the new age. And he is taking with him those he is rescuing from this present evil age. By implication, because he's talking about the eschatological uh, framework, he's also talking about the legal or the forensic context, how Jesus himself has dealt with sin. This is critical to this letter. The giving of himself for our sins to rescue us. Here it is in the first sentence. And we also see the central Christology, the achievement of Jesus as the Messiah. Now, we're so used to the word Christ that we often forget that it is from the Greek form of the Hebrew form of Messiah, meaning the anointed one. So when we read about Jesus Christ, which interestingly enough we do twice in this opening sentence, we are reading of Jesus the Messiah, the one who is fulfilling God's promises. He is the fulfilling of all that God has promised. And he is the one who marks the launching of God's rescue of his people and his creation. And we should not expect anything less that the last part of this sentence is that all of this is to the praise and glory of God. As I said, all that follows in the book of Galatians is an unpacking of this dense opening sentence. So what he writes here is not blah, blah, blah. It's not fluff. It isn't sort of a form of what we might call Christianese. Paul has some very important things to say. It is the foundation to the letter. In many ways, I think we might understand the rest of the letter without this opening sentence. But it would seem rather odd that we not have this summary located here in this first sentence. As this letter is corrective in nature, Paul is seeking to correct a problem, we must recognize that it is by nature a dialogue. That is, that Paul is responding to something, and either he's responding to a letter, which we have no evidence for that like we do in 1 Corinthians, or perhaps reports of what is going on in the churches in Galatia. But there is a dialogue going in here, going on here, and so in the same way that if we listen to someone on the phone, you know, we're not on the phone, they are, we only hear them talking, we have to recreate or imagine in our minds, oh, what did that person say on the other end that the person that I can see and hear said this? This is the case with Paul's writing here in Galatians. So, following the pattern of that time, we have the person who's writing the letter. That is Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by men, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers with me. I just mentioned here in passing, I'll come back to it uh, in the weeks to come. Paul is not alone as he writes this. Uh, he is the primary mover behind this letter because he will talk about his apostleship. But Paul did not like to be alone. Uh, I think this really is sort of counterintuitive for us because we think of great men or great women as loners. Um, Paul didn't like to be alone. 
He did not like to be alone. And even as he writes his letters, he's always quick to mention that he has brothers with him as he writes this letter. Now, if we assume, and I do, that Paul did not waste words, that everything he said had importance, we should really take note of what he writes here and how he identifies himself as the writer of this letter. That he identifies himself as an apostle is not terribly unusual. It's only in the letter to the Philippians and his letters to the Thessalonians that he doesn't do that. All of Paul's other letters, we find himself saying, Paul, an apostle. An apostle is a sent one, someone who is sent and is invested with the authority of the person who commissioned him. So he is one sent by God, invested with the authority that God has given him. He is referred to here as an apostle of Jesus Christ and God the Father. Again, we've seen this elsewhere. But then something new appears. He is an apostle sent not from men, nor by man. And here we begin to have a hint of one of the issues, if not several of the issues, behind this letter. I think two of them are cannot be separated. They're inseparable. And that is Paul as an apostle and the message that Paul preaches. I don't think I'll be giving too much away about the book of Galatians. If I were to tell you that there were people who had come to Galatia who opposed Paul's teaching. And they were saying, we can gather from what Paul writes here, that he wasn't a real apostle. That he wasn't a capital A apostle. That he got his apostleship from the other apostles or from other early Christians. This means that he got his gospel or his message from others. Okay. So, Paul says, no. I am an apostle sent not from men nor by man. The word apostle is used two ways in the New Testament, but we'll stick to the book of Acts. The first is in a narrow sense. We find it in Acts chapter 1, verse 20, verses 21 to 26. Judas Iscariot had committed suicide. There are 11 apostles left, and you might think, so you have 11. Well, the number 12 is very specific. Jesus chose 12 apostles, and that goes to the 12 tribes of Israel. So they can't have 11, and so they want to find someone to take over the apostolic ministry of Judas. These 12 were given unique authority from Jesus to be his representatives and to be, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 2, the foundation of the church. That's one way it's used. It's a very narrow sense. In the broader sense, we find it, it is used of those sent out by the church. They are messengers. Paul and Barnabas are referred to as apostles in Acts chapter 14. We have no problem, and I think the early church, even the people opposed Paul, said, yeah, Paul is sort of the general sense apostle. But Paul is saying, no, I'm also in the narrow sense a capital A apostle. Some would challenge this claim. They would say, listen, you weren't there at the beginning. There were apostles who came before you, and therefore you are subordinate to them. Paul argues here in this book, that is not the case. He is not an apostle sent by men. If the original capital A apostles had been the source of his commission or the agents of his commission, then he would be subordinate to them. But as we will see in chapter 2, and if you're familiar with Galatians, Paul will actually rebuke Peter 
one of the inner circle three for his hypocrisy when dealing with believers in Antioch. So Paul's authority does not come from a human source or by human agency, not from men nor by men. It was given directly to him by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. If you're familiar at all with Paul's writings, this is a recurring theme. Um, Whenever people disagree with Paul, their first comment, at least what we seem to find, is, oh, well, you're not really an apostle, Paul. You're not a capital A apostle, so we don't have to listen to you. We've seen this in the study we're going through in 1 Corinthians at Tom's place in Long Beach. The thesis is this. If you challenge the authority of the messenger, then you can challenge the authenticity of the message and the authority of the message. So if you don't like the message, don't challenge the message. That, that gets a little sticky. Challenge the messenger. And if you can challenge his authority, well, then his message sort of loses all credibility. Paul will touch on this in verses 6 through 10 and later on in Galatians. The issue of Paul as an apostle will be dealt with at length in this book. But we hear it here in the very first sentence. We're still in the first sentence and here we find it already. The second part of a letter in the ancient world was the person or persons to whom the letter is written. The recipients. And here we see in verse 2, to the churches in Galatia. Immediately this should grab our attention. By addressing this letter to the churches of Galatia, in Galatia, Paul is doing something that he's not done elsewhere, either before this letter or after. By the way, some have argued, I think believably, that Galatians may have been one of his first letters. Um, But you notice that he is addressing churches in a province, the province of Galatia. In his other letters, he addresses churches in cities, Rome, Corinth, Ephesus, Philippi, Colossae, Thessalonica, or he addresses individuals like Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. Yet here we find the churches in one province, a group of churches that are addressed. The churches are mentioned in Acts chapter 14, Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, which is Timothy's hometown, Paul will meet him on his second journey there, and Derbe. These were the towns visited by Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. In his other letters, Paul will mention churches in a province, but he only does so when he mentions their greetings or when he talks about them as an example. 1 Corinthians 16.19 The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Okay. 2 Corinthians 8.1 And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. And here we see there an example of giving. And in 1 Thessalonians 2.14, For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews. But never is a letter addressed to a province of churches, churches in a province, except in the book of Galatians. So again, already we're sensing that there's something afoot, that something different may be going on. The third part of a letter in the ancient world, after the person who's writing, the person's addressed, 
would be a greeting. And we see this in verses 3, 4, and 5. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. We've seen elsewhere in Paul's writings that he uses similar greetings. A typical greeting at that time in Greek was karein, which meant greetings. Paul changes this to charis, which is grace. It reflects the basis of God's redemption of his people. It begins with his choosing of his people as well as the resulting sending of his son. So, grace, that which empowers a holy and faithful people. Grace and peace. Peace is very Jewish. It's Hebrew from Shalom. It is the outcome of God's redemptive work. The prophets of the Old Testament wrote of Shalom as the fulfillment of God's promise to restore all things to their created order. Peace summarizes that which is a new world, restored, transformed into the way God intended it to be, but has been ruined by sin. In this single word, we are given a hint of what Paul will address. God's plan for what Peter called in Acts 3, his plan to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Earlier I referred to as the eschatological framework. Yeah, for Paul... It is God's grace and God's peace. God is going to restore all things. But let the reader be clear. What is the source of this grace and this peace? It's from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And how is this grace and peace possible? The Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins and to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of God our Father. At least three things here to take note of. First of all, Jesus gave himself for our sins. While again, we are still in the first sentence of this letter, uh, this is something that Paul will unpack as the letter develops, particularly when we get to chapter 4. We should have an appreciation that Christ sacrificially gave himself and died on the cross for our sins. The reality of God's victory over sin is accomplished by Jesus' death on the cross. It's found throughout this letter. I've mentioned chapter 4, but it's found throughout this letter. Let me just read a couple verses. Perhaps what is familiar to you from chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. And then in chapter 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And then in the last chapter, chapter 6, verse 14, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So the first part is that Christ has given himself for us. The second part is that it is to rescue us from this present evil age. The purpose of the cross is expressed dramatically. I think we are more comfortable saying that Jesus died to save me from our sins. And indeed, Paul has just said that. But there's more to it than that. 
And although to be forgiven of one's sins is beyond wonderful, we read this today. You listen as we heard the promise of forgiveness after the prayer of confession. Um, There's more to it than that. And Paul will spell this out as the letter unfolds. I'll just mention one verse, chapter 5, verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. God, through Jesus Christ, has broken into human history and through the death of Jesus has made possible both a rescue from the present evil age and has made possible the coming new age. The third thing we see here is it is according to the will of God our Father. This rescue plan was, in fact, planned. It wasn't a haphazard event. We find it was the will of God the Father who sent his Son, we read in chapter 4. But when the time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. God the Father sent his Son. But he also sent his Spirit in the next two verses. Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. This is almost too much to comprehend. It's staggering that God has done this. And how are we to respond? To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The accomplishment of the Father's plan in history is an expression of his grace and will bring about his peace, the restoration of all things. Well, I've mentioned that there are three parts to the beginning of a letter. The author, the audience, and then a greeting. But traditionally, there's also a fourth part, and that is the giving of thanks. And this isn't a Christian thing. We see this in pagan letters as well, in which the writer would um, say, I, I thank the gods that you are in good health or that you are prospering. And we see that the Christians do this as well. We certainly see this in the letters of Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And if you listen, it sounds very similar, but it's a bit different from what he writes to the Galatians. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. In Philippians 1, perhaps the most familiar, I thank my God every time I remember you. So this is typical for the time period. It's typical for Paul. But if you'll notice here in Galatians 1, we don't find that. Instead of saying, I thank God for you, Paul begins with a rebuke. Look, if you would, at verses 6 through 10. I am astonished, Paul writes, that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. 
As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. <clears throat> am I trying now to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. For some people, they are almost glad to read these words from Paul because it sort of confirms what they've thought about Paul all along. He's actually just not a very nice man. Just sort of a grumpy old guy uh, who never got married. And uh, perhaps in the words of Jane Austen, he was in need of a good woman, um, but never, never managed to get married. And so he's always just sort of grumpy. Um, no. The words from Proverbs, I think, more than explain Paul here. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. It is because he loves the believers in Galatia that Paul writes what he does. Now, we may not, and I personally do not like confrontation, but if a rebuke or a correction is called for, then we are less than loving and we are less than a friend if we do not do as we should. In the situation we will see as the letter unfolds, correction is definitely called for. They have, the gospel has been perverted. We can't stand for that. Paul can't stand for that. And so correction is called for. That's why Paul writes this letter that he might correct their error. So Paul writes this letter to the Galatians. And the Lord willing, this is what we will be studying for the next foreseeable future. But let us remember, it all begins with the first sentence. The first sentence isn't fluff. It isn't Christianese. It isn't sort of filler till you get to the good stuff. Here in these five verses, this one sentence, Paul lays out what he is going to tell the Galatians. That God has sent his son to bring about our redemption and the restoration of all things. It is by grace that peace will be brought. And they have gotten off track because false teachers have come in and said something different. Paul, who is an apostle, has an authentic message. He is an authentic apostle. We need to listen to what he has to say. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are thankful for your word, but we would in the same breath confess that oftentimes we are too familiar with it, or at least we think we are. It seems that if someone begins reading Paul an Apostle, we feel like we can fill in the blanks. And we forget that each letter was written to different situations. That as Paul writes to the churches in the province of Galatia, there's something seriously that has gone wrong. And even in the first words, in the first sentence of his letter, he lays out for us the wonderful gospel that you have sent your Son into the world to restore all things. 
and to rescue us from this present evil age. Forgive us when we do not treat your word with respect, when we take it for granted, when either we see it as a textbook or as a source of comfort only, rather than taking it seriously and looking at it word by word, sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph. We ask for your grace in the weeks to come as we go through this letter, as I study and prepare, that you would guide me. And by your grace, may we learn from what Paul wrote to our brothers and sisters all those centuries ago. I thank you that I'm back, that I'm able to be here again with your people. Thank you for keeping us safe while we were apart and bringing us back together. Today, after the service, we'll be working together, eating together. We ask your blessing on the food and on our time that we spend together. May your spirit and your grace be with us as we leave this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please, as we sing the doxology together?